Jesus revealed a profound truth to a very unlikely individual in Scripture. In John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus was talking to a divorced woman of questionable character, uh, a mixed race woman uh, who was a Samaritan, and he was speaking to her beside a well where she had come to gather water there in Samaria. 2,000 years ago, and in this dialogue of this most unlikely individual revealed a very profound statement of truth. In John 4.23, Jesus at the conclusion of this dialogue says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, For the Father is seeking, seeking such people to worship Him. The Father, God is seeking, actively looking for those that would worship Him. Now, I would think that the Father would be looking for those that are willing to share the gospel. And certainly that is a major part of God's mission a desire, or he's seeking those that would be faithful in their church attendance, or their giving, or whatever it is, Bible reading, all those are important, and God does want us to be faithful in those things, but it says this very profound statement, and again, I I don't want you to miss the significance that this wasn't something that he shared and revealed to his disciples, or Nicodemus, some of the religious leaders of his day, but he revealed it to a very, um, in that, this time and culture, a mixed race divorced woman who's living with another man, the most unlikely person that God, through in Jesus, opens up this profound statement of truth that the Father is looking, is actively seeking true worshipers. Worship is important. Worship matters. Bob Coughlin, who does so well leading the Sovereign Grace music, if you, those of you who are guests and the CD that we put in there is, uh, is uh, from Sovereign Grace music, and he wrote a book on worship that I really uh, find valuable, and he says, worship matters. It matters to God because He's the one ultimately worthy of all worship. It matters to us because worshiping God is the reason for which we were created. Now, that's another quote that I'm going to read in a minute. Not that one. Let me read it again. They had the wrong one up there. Just put John 4.23 back up there. See, you know, we have this telepathic thing going on here. Now, they have a tough job. They have to anticipate, you know, and follow. And sometimes I throw them off, so... It's not their doing. But let me read you this quote, and I'm going to read you another quote that will be on the screen. This is just a couple of sentences. He said, worship matters, and the reason it matters to God is because he is the only one ultimately worthy of all worship. And it should matter to us because worshiping God is the reason that we were created. Now, 
Another similar statement is from somebody I, I encourage you to read, a man by the name, uh, his name is A.W. Tozer, and uh, he writes this, a similar statement said in a different way. He says, yes, worship of the loving God is man's whole reason for existence. That is why we were born, and that is why we were born again from above. That is why we were created, and that is why we have been recreated, uh, regenerated. That is why there was a genesis or a beginning, uh, a new life at the beginning, and that is why there is a regenesis, meaning we are regenerated. That is also why there is a church. The Christian church, God's church, exists to worship God first of all, and everything else must come second or third or fourth and fifth that we exist to worship and glorify God. And we, you know, we call, well, we, this is a worship service or this is a worship time. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're worshiping God, right? So if God, the Father, the Lord, is actively looking and seeking after worshipers, I wonder what he would find at 2320 Sleepy Hill Road. Would he find people that are gathered here right now, would he find people that, are, that he would consider true worshipers? And so for the next several Sundays, not really sure how many, but um, I guess till I, if I said run out of material, then that'll be in 30 years, but I don't have that long and you don't have that long to listen, but, uh, or patience to listen, but, so, but, but we're going to take some time to look in a kind of a series that I'm calling The Heart of Worship. The Heart of Worship. And that is the title of this uh, series the, that we're going we're gonna to explore some areas about worship. Uh, and some of it might be, as I, as I like to do in this morning, what we call expositional. We'll take a passage of Scripture and break it down. Some of it might be topical, but, but it'll kind of be looking at it, worship from a, some different angles. And my goal and desire is that as a church body, one of the things that is a hallmark, or I would say kind of in our DNA of Grace Church in the 30, 31-year history that this church has been here, is that worship has always been a key component of this church. We've had uh, uh, always, among the various uh, times and changes, worship has always been that which has been a hallmark of what Grace Church is all about. Now, again, I'm not saying that other churches don't, but the worship ministry has been always a priority, and we want it to remain a priority. So as we talk about the heart of worship, we want ourselves to make sure that we are <coughs> in sync or in alignment. And some of you uh, come from a church background in which the worship of God, uh, they, they did a really good job doing that. And that was a big part of your, of you, even today as, as, as a Christian. But some of you who maybe our style, and again, sometimes when we talk about worship, we tend to talk about the style of music or contemporary traditional hymns, whatever. And I'm not talking about technique because that, 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 that is a part. But the worship of God, listen, if we went to other countries, guess what? You're going to find the worship is going to be significantly different than how we might do it here in the United States. 
And so again, the worship that focuses upon God is do we have a heart to exalt God? Regardless of whether we're singing a hymn or a contemporary chorus or whatever it is at the, at the very heart level, because sometimes what happens in uh, maybe the background I came in is that worship can become just a focus of externals and instead of the worshiper, that we're worshiping God in, as Jesus said, in spirit, in the Holy Spirit, and in truth. And so today we're going to begin looking in this, uh, in this uh, series by looking at Psalm 95. Psalm 95, if you have your Bibles or can swipe over there uh, in your tablet or phone, but Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is a psalm that was used in the worship of, uh, of, the, our, of, our, uh, of the Jews when they would gather together as a call of worship. And if you've been in our uh, study on Wednesdays in Hebrews, you'll be reminded that we, when we were in chapter 3, a big chunk of Psalm 95 is quoted in Hebrews chapter 3, that the writer of Hebrews quotes and uses Psalm 95 when he's uh, addressing the, the audience of the Hebrews. And so we're going to break this down this morning, and, and the title of today's message is called An Invitation to Worship, An Invitation to Worship. God invites us to worship, and I'm going to break this down into three parts. Number one is that worship is a call to rejoice. Worship is a call to rejoice. Look at the first five verses of Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. There's five characteristics that I want to point out to you under this, uh, in, in these five verses here, under this invitation, is first of all, worship is what I'm calling collective. Worship is collective. Three times in verses 1 and 2, uh, and these should be on the screen, worship is collective. Three times in verses 1 and 2, we read, let us, let us, let us. Sometimes what we have fallen into, especially in our American culture, I think is, is even uh, especially susceptible to it, is we can have a very individualistic, private form or private attitude <coughs> concerning worship. Now, don't get me wrong, we need to be privately worshipers of God. But also that worship is to be a part of the collective gathering of God's people. It isn't just limited to what we do in our quiet time, uh, listening to praise music or reading our Bible, but it's meant and intended by God to be part of the gathering of God's people, congregational. You remember the writer of Hebrews, this is not on the screen, but in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, the writer of Hebrews says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then he says, not 
neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. You know, some folks, even since COVID, have just gotten in a habit, and I'm not talking about those who have legitimate health issues or anything like that, so no guilt trip here, okay? But I'm saying there are those, and, and thankfully it's very, it's not so much here at Grace Church, but I read and hear about other churches that said, you know, all these people that we had two years ago, where are they? There was a church in town that uh, on their marquee that when they opened up, <laughs> I, I kind of smiled because I'm like, I know what he's going through. But uh, he put on that marquee, you promised you'd come back. <laughs> I'm like, brother, I'm with you. I know what you're talking about. Uh, but yet worship is something we do as a body. That's why your faithfulness to the church body, the community of believers, is so vital. Okay, Worship, yes, is vital daily, regularly, privately. But there's something, even that scripture we read where he says, let us stir one another up. You can't do that sitting by yourself watching worship and church services on television, even our streaming. And hopefully those that I understand, those who for physical or health reasons, it's a, it's a tool that we put in place. But yet it is not, hear what I'm saying, it is not a substitute if you are healthy and able to be physically here among believers, okay? <coughs> also, worship is vocal. Verse 1 says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. It is about singing, lifting our voices. Uh, you say, well, some of the songs are new to me. Well, you know what? Uh, at one time... Uh, some of the songs you hum back in your rock and roll days, they were new. Now you can just wake up from a dead sleep and start singing Bye Bye Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee. You know, I mean, my wife is so impressed that I know all the lyrics to that. But I'll be in Petco and can't remember my stinking ATM number, right? Why is that, all right? Maybe I should put scripture to... Uh, American pie. But anyway, but, but my point is, is that if you're intentional to listen and to learn and engage, again, you may not be somebody's, you know, the, and that's where uh, traditionally sometimes the, the simpler hymns or the choruses, they're more engaging. And so sometimes you can sing songs and sometimes we, we do it here. We don't do it intentionally, but, but there's always that. And I think Sherry and Teresa, they all do a great job, but there's always, you know, it's that balance that some songs are great to listen to, but they're just too wordy to sing, you know? And uh, so again, but the point is, is that we are to use our voices. We are to be vocal. Also, worship is vibrant, vibrant and vigorous. It says, make, in verse 2, make a joyful noise. There's something exuberant and joyful that God's worshipers should be characterized by. You know, if you read the Old Testament, man, they had, they had a whole different mindset of worship. I mean, they danced, they sang, they lifted their hands, and, you know, they, they, you know, Psalm 150, which is always a mystery of those that don't like musical instruments in the church. I've never understood how you get Psalm 150 in there that speaks about, this, you know, Brian, the, the drums, the cymbals, you know, all the, the sounds that are meant and intended to lift up 
praise and worship to God. Now again, it's not just, remember, it's a joyful noise. There's noise, and then there's joyful noise. Sometimes when you hear the car going down the street a mile away with their bass cranked up, that's noise. Maybe it's joyful and they're in the car. I don't know. Um, I guess I've reached that old man stage. But, but we are to make a joyful no- noise. New King James uses sing for joy, shout for joy, and shout joyfully to him. The New King James says in verse 2, shout joyfully to him with psalms. You realize the psalms was God's worship book he put where? Right smack dab in the middle of the Bible. He put a built-in worship book right there in the middle. Shout. You remember the Israelites when they walked around in in Joshua 6, they circled the the, uh, walls of Jericho. They were told to shout, right? Uh, Israelites, as they went into battle, raised a shout. Now, I get there are some uh, ethnic cultures that are much more inclined and geared and their heritage to be a much more expressive. Our African-American friends, Latino friends, all of that is a culture that just by their culture is much more expressive and comfortable with that, right? Us white Europeans, you know, we're much more stiffer, you know? We're, we're a little more, you know, and we need to kind of break out of that a little bit, okay? I'm just saying, all right? That's free. Um, but here's the thing, is that worship isn't just, because again, this can be, this can be a, a, a deceptive thing, it isn't, just, uh, it, it isn't just the expression, because you can have an expression, but your heart be distant and far. You know how I know that? Is because even though I try like you not to do it, there are times I could be mouthing the words and worshiping, but I'm thinking, gosh, it's kind of cold in here. We need to do this. Uh, you know, who left that bottle out here? You know, I mean, my mind is going all over. You know, there's a typo on the screen. And really, I never see one. But, but I'm, my point is, is my mind, what, is distracted, even though, you know, I'm going through the motions, my mind and heart and there's a discipline you have to give yourself. That's why if you're physically able, hear me, this is not guilt trip, but if you are physically able, when people are standing, stand. Be engaged, okay? Don't just be sitting there on your phone or daydreaming. Be engaged. This is not preliminaries that we just need to run through to get to the preaching. You know, there's some churches that kind of just have that mindset. Listen, the entire time we are together is worship. From beginning to end is part of our worship to God, all right? Worship is also, should be God-centered. Should be God-centered. It's a good reminder that it isn't just about being emotional and singing loud to draw attention to yourself. That's not, that's not the point. But our focus should be on the Lord. Look at verses 1 and 2. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. 
Let us make a joyful noise to Him. You see, the focus in worship, hear me, it isn't how it makes you feel. It isn't about how it makes you feel. Is the worship honoring and is it pointed to God? You know, now this is free, useless trivia as my wife likes to call it. You know the whole architecture of steeples, what that is intended and was intended in its design. What do steeples do? They do what? Pointing. Was to point Godward. Upward, to point to God. Why? Because God's people should be God-centered, God-focused. We sing unto the Lord. It isn't just about what makes me feel good. I've had conversations with people in different churches and settings where they might have really enjoyed a certain activity in the church that, they, that that was how they engaged in worship. And I said, you know, I understand that. But that's really something that is better that you do in private because when you do it here, it's out of sync and it's not edifying to the body. And everybody, even though they're supposed to be focused on worshiping the Lord, they're watching you do whatever it is. And I'm not going to say it because some of you will figure it out. Do you hear what I'm saying? So in other words, it isn't about the person, I don't want to say showing off, but And I think this is Paul's argument, one of the heart of his argument when he talks in, to the Corinthians about speaking in tongues. Remember, he said, I would rather speak, I'd rather speak five intelligible words that people are edified with than a thousand tongues in public. Why? Because the intelligible words is what builds up and edifies the body. He said, Paul said, I speak in tongues more than any of you. So, again, he's not saying that what you do in private and edifying always matches what should be done in public because our, our priority is a little different. Is this edifying to the body? And so if somebody is perhaps always yelling louder than somebody else, you may think, oh, that person really, man, they're really into this. Well, every week, come on, calm down, get a grip. It's distracting. Is that mean? Is that mean? I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying that it isn't to draw attention to yourself. And maybe some of you were never in a church setting where that was an issue. I grew up where that was an issue. And that caused issues. And so we want to make sure that our worship is not glorifying me or pointing people or distracting to somebody who might be more exuberant or, or whatever, and, and you know, again, we don't want to, there's always that tricky balance, you know, again, we're not trying to stifle anybody, but at the same time, I think the Bible does teach that things should be done decently and in order, not chaos, right? I've been in some church service, it was just chaos, and I'm really, again, I, I don't, I'm not sure how that, how that glorified the Lord, but at the same time, we don't want to be so controlled, hear me, that somehow we think that is glorifying the Lord too. Do you understand balance? You know, and balance is that is what we're after. But it's the foundation. Of, again, it, it or the focus should always be that it's before the Lord. But the last thing here is an observation in this invitation to and our worship is to rejoice. Is that worship is grounded and or founded on truth? Look at verses three and four. 
It says the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. We are to shout, but it's to the Lord. And that is speaking about the supremacy of God. Or we talk a lot about the sovereignty of God. That the exaltation and the rejoicing is with purpose. Our worship is with purpose. Our worship is not just like faith. As faith is not just faith in nothing. But faith is the, as Hebrews 11 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Our worship is anchored in the truth of the nature and character of God. This, unfortunately, I've been in settings where people were very exuberant, very emotional, but yet there seemed to be very little understanding or focus upon God. It was all about the music or the style. You hear me? And we want to make sure we have balance there. We want to make sure that we are, have that foundation. And again, that I can rejoice in those things. You know, it's easy for me to rejoice on a human level those things that make me personally happy, right? Now, I don't do it too much anymore. But, uh, you know, a Culver's Butter Burger can bring joy to my life. Now, some of you, I just lost you, all right? And I tell you, it was a sign of the end times when they built one here in North Lakeland, right? The apocalypse is near, all right? Um, but see, I can rejoice. It's easy for me to rejoice and have joy, the joy of the Lord in those things that I, if I could say it this way, that I take pleasure in. Guess what? God wants you to learn to take pleasure in Him, and so the rejoicing isn't like a switch you got to turn on, turn off. Rejoicing comes natural. Why? Because I'm satisfied in Him. I take pleasure in Him. I'm thankful for Him. Worshiping God is easy, if you will, because my joy is anchored and centered in the truth of who God is. John Piper says it better than I can. He said this. The quote will be on the screen. He said, we also believe that our joy shows the supremacy of God's value. If His greatness is the basis of our joy, then our joy is the evidence of His greatness. Do you see that? I'm going to read it again. If His greatness, His supremacy, His sovereignty, is the basis of our joy, then our joy is the evidence, the fruit of His greatness. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. If we are not joyful, if we don't respond to his call, his first call to rejoice, then we are not giving evidence of God's greatness. And so God, look at verse 4 and 5. It says, speaking about the supremacy, the sovereignty, verse 4, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. He is in control. He is in charge. He works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And we cannot escape this God. That's why there is an aspect of the collective community we gather. But everywhere we are, we are in, if you will, 
under the gaze of our Creator. Look at Psalm 139. It should be on the screen as well. Where, Psalm 139, beginning of verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand should hold me. Some of you that are going through some really dark waters, swimming some dark waters in some valleys right now, should take comfort and quit saying, God has abandoned me. He's not abandoning you. Guess what? He's right there with you. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. He says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You see, God is over all his creation. He's sovereign, he's supreme, and worthy of our worship. So worship is a call to rejoice, but the second part in our passage of Psalm 95 is that worship is a call to reverence. We're talking about rejoicing, exuberance, but worship is a call to reverence. Psalm 95, verses 9 through 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel. For the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That picture of the shepherd from John 10, 11. Notice verses 1 and 10. Notice the change here. Or I'm not, verses, I'm not sorry, I'm sorry, not 1 and 10. But verses 1 and 2, where we just read, the worshiper stands in God's presence, shouting forth, praise, singing joyfully, rejoicing to the Lord. But look at the change now in verse 6. He's falling on his face before God in humbled silence. You see, worship isn't either or, reverence or rejoicing. It's both and rejoicing and reverence. You know, even in the limited time that we have in the worship portion of our worship service here, is that part of the beginning part is a rejoicing as you enter into the gates of uh, thanksgiving, if you will, and then it is to move you into the intimate reverency of, of our worship. See, some folks love the exuberance and the rejoicing and the excitement, but you get into the intimacy part of worship, and it makes some of you uncomfortable because you don't have... You don't have an intimacy relationship with the Lord. There's something about that personal intimacy where I'm not just singing, listen to me, I'm not just singing about God, I'm singing to God. You see, that's personal. That's, there's an intimacy there. I was thinking, and I won't attempt to sing it, but maybe we can incorporate it. The chorus, Maranatha chorus, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people 
of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Come, let us bow down. You see, when you're bowing and kneeling, what is that? That's a lowness. If you were to, you know, if we were to be in a in a setting where there was a monarchy and you would come to the the queen or the king or whatever, there it's in their tradition to bow. It's a symbol of of humility. It's a, it's a symbol of their sovereign rule. Listen to me. It's a symbol of their sovereign rule that they are over me and I am under them, if you will, in that, in that setting, in that status. That's why, um, I'm trying to remember who it was, but you know, American officials or presidents get in a lot of trouble if they go over and visit foreign countries and, and the media catches them even just kind of bowing in respect because in America, we don't bow to nobody, right? You're not going to tell us what to do, right? And that's a whole big deal right now. You're not going to tell us what to do, right? That's kind of that American mindset. But see, this bowing and this kneeling is an act of humility before the Lord. It's a physical act. Listen, just like lifting your hands, there's more about lifting your hands than the doctrine of election in the Bible. Think about that. There's more about it, your physicality as an expression before the Lord. When you lift your hands, you're saying, Lord, I, I receive, I surrender. You see, lifting your hands. Paul said, I wish that all men would lift hands and offer prayers before the Lord. And so when we when we have this, and all I want you to see is this reverence here. Yes, we have rejoicing. We have exuberance. But we have this kneeling and this bowing down as a physical act of God's authority and the reverence. And here's what's interesting is, is that as you read this, don't you know, look at it later. And I would encourage you to read. It's only 11 verses. But it's interesting that the call to rejoice in that we looked at earlier is based on God's sovereignty as the creator in the first portion, in verses 1 through 6 of the psalm. But as we go in this other section, it's a call for reverence from verse 6 on, and that's based on relationship. Now, I would think that, it's that the priority should be on the relationship, and because I have this great relationship, I can worship God and His sovereignty. No, it's, it's knowing who God is, and it's, it's understanding the person of God and God's supremacy and His sovereignty that I can worship and I have this relationship that is founded upon the nature and the character of God. So the deeper our relationship with knowing God, the more profound will be our sense of awe and reverence. You see, people who have a very casual, the man upstairs kind of mentality have no understanding of the nature and the character of God in their own personal life. They have a trivial view of God. He's the God of the good parking places at Walmart. They've never had a, had a contemplation like Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6, where he saw the Lord high and lifted up. In the holiness, day and night, these angelic beings surrounding the throne, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And so the deeper, that's why we're always pushing you to grow in godliness, grow in the Word, grow in knowing God. Knowing not just about God in a theoretical sense, 
And you've heard me say this before. If you, if you love the study of theology, but the study of theology doesn't make you more humble, more compassionate, more worshiping, God-loving, there's not, maybe nothing wrong with the theology. There's something wrong with what you're doing there because your growth and knowledge in theology, that's just the study of God, should cause you to stop and ponder. This God that I'm, that I'm reading about. Am I reading about God like I'm reading about a new blender I just bought? I'm just reading the manual to give me some details of how to operate the machinery better? Is that my approach? to, Or am I, am I studying God because the bigger God is, the smaller I am? And my reverence and my worship is reflected in that understanding of God. Does that make sense? Well, those of you who are awake, does that make sense? Huh? That there's a connection between growing in God and the fruit of godliness being reflected in your life? I mean, nobody that was around Jesus and had a transformative encounter with Jesus ever was the same. And yet, we handle sacred things on Sunday and leave just as cantankerous and mean as we came in. Thirdly, we talked about a call to rejoice, a call to reverence. But thirdly, worship is a call to respond. Look at verses 8, actually begin verse 7 through 11. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. And here's the response. Listen. Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. We'll talk about that. As on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. Though they had seen my work. Verse 10. For 40 years I loathed. This is the Lord speaking. For 40 years I loathed that generation. And said they are a people who go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath. The Lord says. They shall not enter my Rest. You see, part of worship is rejoicing, reverence, but it also is responding in obedience to the Word of God. Something that unfortunately gets misplaced. It's part of our worship of God. I mean, think about it. The first four commandments of the Ten Commandments specifically, are about worshiping God. What does that tell you? The real essence of the, in the garden and their disobedience was that they chose their allegiance to, to not worship God and listen to the enemy. The first murder in Scripture was in the context of what? 
of a worship, worship issue. Satan being cast out of heaven was over what? He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to be worshipped. Worship is a big deal. Now, you have these two words or these two geographical locations. Massa is a Hebrew word for test. Meribah means strife or contention. And in Exodus 17, I just have some, a summary up there, so I'm not going to have you turn to it, but, but I want you to know what these mean, is that that's the first mention of Massa and Meribah. And in, Ex, in Exodus 17, of what is being referred to here, God had recently, in, in Exodus 17, set his people free from the bondage of Egypt. Remember, miraculously delivered them out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, Right? And then as they came in Exodus 15, actually that wasn't in 17, but it was in that section. But in Exodus 15, as they were released out of Egypt and they, was, they were moving into what we would refer to as the wilderness and fleeing uh, Egyptian hands and God miraculously delivered that, they came to a place uh, where there was bitter waters there, a place called Merah, not the same place here. And remember God sweetened the water and gave them water to drink. In other words, God is caring for them all along the way. But in Exodus 17, uh, another situation, they're lacking water, and they begin to quarrel with Moses. God miraculously provided water two chapters before. Now in Exodus 17, they're quarreling with Moses. You know, God doesn't, you know, he just brought us out here to kill us. And, and so God instructs Moses to take his staff and to strike this rock, and water gushed forth, and God miraculously, in spite of their grumbling and complaining, does he do that with us? Yes, he does. Uh, in spite of their grumbling and complaining, provided water for them to drink. And so Moses named the place Massa and Meribah because the people grumbled and tested God. He's saying back to Psalm 95, don't do that. Don't harden your hearts like your forefathers did. Learn from their example. And then we see the second reference to Meribah. It's only used in Numbers 20. And 40 years later from what happened in Exodus 17, in Exodus 15 and 17, 40 years, fast forward, the same situation. Now they're getting ready to go into this promised land of Canaan that God had been promising them about. And once again, guess what? They were without water. And they griped and they complained. And Moses and Aaron, after 40 years, what did they do? They fell on their face before God. And God told them, specifically to Moses, that he wanted Moses to speak to the rock. You know, God is in the God of details, right? Speak to the rock so that the water will come out. That's what he told him. Not what you did before, Moses. Speak to this rock, and there will be an abundance of water that comes forth. But instead, Moses was angry. He was ticked off. And he didn't speak to that rock. He took that staff, that stick, and he struck that thing twice in anger. Just tired of these people 
that all they do is gripe and complain. Pastors love preaching these passages, right? I don't because I don't have that experience here, thankfully. But I know pastors that always go, just, you know, I'm like Moses. No, you're not. You're not, you're not Moses. Get over yourself. All right? Um, um, and you know what God did? He punished Moses. And he says this in Numbers 20, verse 12, because you did not, listen to me, he said, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me, he's speaking to Moses, a leader, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, leaders, you set an example, you will not bring this community, he tells Moses, into the land that I give them. So his judgment on Moses was, but what is the essence of all these issues here? is they did not obey the word of God. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. They were worshiping and doing all these things. But God takes obedience to what he says very, very seriously. Even down to the details. Some of us, we need to heed what 1 Corinthians 10, 11, when we read Psalms like this and the references Paul said to the Corinthians, now these things, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now these things happen to them. He's talking about the Old Testament folks as an example. And they were written down for our instruction, for our benefit, to learn, to listen. So the response, and I'm going to wrap it up with verse 10. Look at verse 10. I think it should be on the screen. Here's what it comes down to, guys. For 40 years, the Lord says, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart. And here it is. Don't miss this. They have not known my ways. See, that's, that's the issue. Think about this. Think about the significance of those words. These are people who witnessed miracles. Go ahead and put that back up there if you would, please. Thanks. These are people who witnessed miracles. I mean, water from a rock, manna from heaven, deliverance, walking on Dry ground through the Red Sea, miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet the Lord says, what? They have not known my ways. What does that tell us? That means you can be in the midst, in the middle of the most miraculous God-given activity and still have a heart that's cold and apathetic to God. They have not known my ways. This is a call. Psalm 95 is a call to worship. And what is this David, as he pens this psalm, is doing in the midst of this worship? Is saying, yes, rejoice, rever the Lord, but don't, 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 don't. Harden your heart and think because you're running through the motions of worship that you're really worshiping. Because the crux of the issue goes back to what he said there in verse 10. They go astray, where? In their heart. In their heart. 
Now you could put those three points. So the invitation to worship is a call to rejoice passionately, to have reverence. Rejoicing and reverence are not enemies or odds with each other. And to respond, respond to the word of the Lord. Am I responding? Watch me. Don't don't worry about her. Watch me. To respond with a heart. How do I respond? I hear and my feet. One quote that I thought I wasn't going to read it. A guy named Leonard Sweet writes a lot of books on church growth. But he said this, he said, our pews are occupied by people who want to be moved, but who don't ever want to move themselves. They want you to emotionally play their favorite tunes on Sunday, but they're really not interested in obeying the very words that they sing. You see, what do we start with in John 4.23? The Lord, the Father, is looking, looking. And it says he's looking for true worshipers. Now, if somebody's a true worshiper, antithetically, there are false worshipers. He's not looking just for worshipers. He's looking for true worshipers. And then it's worshiping him in spirit Holy Spirit, not just being spirited and an exuberant person, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit that comes alongside as our helper that leads us and guides us, that points us to exalt Jesus in spirit and in truth. Such people, the Father is seeking, seeking. I want this congregation, me, you, I want us to be those people as far as we can on this side of heaven to be people that the Father says, yeah, yeah, that's who I'm looking for. Folks that have a heart, they don't live double lives. They're not doing one thing in here and doing something out there. Because as we saw in one, Psalm 139, the Lord sees everything, right? All my life is lived in worship before the Lord, if you will.